This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. We are halfway through May, guys. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa a podcast lover and investigative reporter with NBC12 in Richmond. Thank you so much for your continued support of our podcast, How We Got Here. We're on episode five of season three. And up until this point, we were able to interview all of our guests in person. Not the case in this episode. We had to rely on technology in the height of the pandemic. But that's okay, because we are still turning back the clock on the week of May 18th through the 24th. In the summer of 2019, the 400th anniversary of the beginnings of democracy in the Western world was celebrated at Jamestown. The president even made a trip to mark the occasion. But some early days in Virginia are anything but reason for celebration. And we're nearing the 400th anniversary of a moment in time that shows the dark, sometimes deceitful side of colonialism in the New World. It happened this week, way back in 1623. A proposed meeting for peace between colonists and Powhatan Indians ended with hundreds dead as the Indians were given poisoned wine. Both sides are equally distrustful of one another, yet the Virginia Indians are moving forward to try to say, okay, we have a limited degree of trust in these guys. Let's go ahead, let's go through with this peace treaty. And then you see what the outcome of that level of trust ends up being. We needed an expert on the 17th century to tell us about this one. And we found the perfect person for the job. But because of quarantine in the 21st century, we spoke over Zoom. My name is Luke Pecorero, and I am the Director of Curatorial Services for the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. I actually grew up in uh, Western Pennsylvania, but um, when I was quite young, my grandfather took me to see an active archeological dig on a revolutionary war fort that was near my hometown. I just thought it was the coolest thing to see these folks uh, excavating and pulling out gun flints and musket balls. And that whole idea of um, using the material to tell the story of history is what led me to get into archeology. span Ah. Archaeology. Quick side note here, I totally wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a kid. I would watch dinosaur bone digs for fun. Then I realized how tedious it all was and decided to be a journalist. Back to our expert. Before his job at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, he did archaeological fieldwork all over Virginia's Tidewater region, which pushed him to learn even more about early America. 
I got my uh, doctoral degree from Boston University. The focus of that topic was 17th century Anglo-Irish settlements in the Tidewater, Virginia. So I've been researching the 17th century here for quite some time. You know, there's just so many unknowns with this particular time period. History can't tell us everything. And with the rich archaeological record that we have in this particular area, using those documents and using the materials to tell that story of the 17th century in Virginia uh, and its impact, you know, how it relates to modern day is, is something that I get really excited about. And we're excited to take you on this journey back in time. But before we jump right in... As an anecdote to all of this, you know, I live in, in rural Gloucester County, so whenever I make the drive into Richmond, I have to take Route 33 and head west. And when you get to the town of West Point, there's actually a Virginia historical marker that's uh, right there at the border of King William County and King and Queen County. It really jumps out at you from the car when you're driving by at about 45 miles an hour that says, Indians poisoned in piecemeal. So I can only imagine what people driving by must think uh, if they don't have the time to pull over and actually read the thing. Seriously, what a bizarre headline. So if you've ever noticed that historical marker and wondered what in the world it was referring to, we've got you covered. Our story begins when English settlers landed on Virginia shores in 1607. It's a year many know well due to the Jamestown settlement. Almost immediately, there was conflict between the settlers and the, uh, the native Virginia Indians who they encountered right out of the gate. Things were not all that peaceful as the colonists kept expanding, claiming more and more land and resources. But by 1622, it became very clear. The English were there to stay and they were there to colonize and undermine Virginia's Indian people. And by that time, it was pretty clear the English were not going to stop unless they were forced to. In March of 1622 on Good Friday, Virginia Indians set upon the outlying settlements around Jamestown. So on the York River, James River, almost as far west as present-day Richmond. It was a carefully orchestrated attack by the Virginia Indians led by Opie Kankadoo. He was Paramount Chief Powhatan's war leader, so to speak. During this particular episode, Approximately 350 English colonists lost their lives, and this was a, quite a significant blow to the Virginia settlement because that was one-third of the uh, colonial population. One-third of all the colonists in the New World wiped out in a single day. Some settlements saw very few survive. There's one in particular that's relatively well-known called Martin's Hundred, uh, which is just south of modern-day Williamsburg that was archaeologically excavated. And they found remains of the uh, settlers who perished in that attack. And, you know, a number of the Martin's Hundred settlers who survived uh, were held captive by the uh, Virginia Indians for quite some time. So the colonial government took the offensive. 
almost immediately called out the militia and they went after the Virginia Indians who perpetrated the attack. You're talking about March 1622, of that particular event taking place. It's been referred to you know, throughout history as a massacre. I think the more appropriate term to use is uh, it was an assault on the English settlers in Virginia. Massacre implies something completely different. But by the time you get from March 1622 to uh, May 1623, there's been almost a year of constant warfare. Both sides are worn down by this. Both sides also know uh, that they can employ trickery to be able to get the upper hand over the other. And it's worth noting here that Virginia is not under royal governance at this point. This is still a business venture by the Virginia Company of London. And it's teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, meaning wealthy planters, militia leaders, and members of the colonial government are calling the shots. It's the, uh, the good old boys club. One of those good old boys is uh, Captain William Tucker. He attempts to broker a peace treaty, so to speak. And if you could see me, I'm using, uh, you know, the air quotes around peace treaty <laughs> um, with, the, uh, with the Virginia Indians. Opie Kankanu and several of the other war chieftains are invited to this particular treaty. And it's not like the Indians foolishly agreed to meet for peace talks. They needed to plant crucial crops to survive. And when you're constantly engaged in war, planting a field takes a back seat to protecting your family. But the English were more food secure than the Indians. They could just get supplies shipped from England. And because they didn't rely as heavily on crops, they knew they had the Virginia Indians in a tough spot. At this time, what's supposed to happen is there's going to be an exchange of many of the prisoners who were taken in March of 1622 in exchange for trade items, you know, beads and other items that the Virginia Indians desire, and then a peace deal will effectively be brokered. So the two sides met, and the prisoners are handed back to the English colonists. There are a number of speeches, and then a toast for peace. Dr. John Pott, who serves as the physician general for Virginia, who's also on the governor's council, who's also in the militia, ends up lacing the drink. And uh, this becomes known in the colonial record, the libation of poisoned sack. And sack might be a term that uh, people aren't familiar with uh, in the modern era, but that's essentially white wine. So John Pott laces the drink with poison and almost immediately, according to the colonial records, uh, some of the Indians are sickened at once, begin to stagger, some die outright. The colonists then make it seem like they're turning to leave, to escape the scene of their deadly trap. But then very quickly, they turn on the Virginia Indians, open fire on them, and kill between 150 to 200 outright, and then another 50 are believed to have been killed in this you know, attack that the English make on them following the poisoning. According to some records, souvenirs are taken away by the English settlers back to Jamestown, so this might include scalps, um, things of that nature. So it's a particularly grisly episode. 
the possibility of peace met with betrayal, deceit, and death. Now, even by the standards of the time, when word gets back to the governing authority in England, this isn't something that goes over all that well, and there are inquests that are made. But John Pott's actions effectively, you know, raise him up into hero-like status, and he just continues to increase in popularity uh, amongst his peers uh, for, for what he did. I mean, not to use the you know, overly cliched term, bad optics, but these are terrible optics. Not only on behalf of um, you know, some of the Virginia settlers who are probably weary of warfare, who are not in this you know, upper echelon governing clique, who are just trying to make it and trying to survive, but to the people back at home in, in England. Though Captain William Tucker arranged the so-called peace treaty, the eyes of justice turned to the man who made the poison, Dr. John Pott. History also knows him by the last name Potts. He was said to be a very skilled surgeon. We know that he attended uh, the Royal College of Surgeons before he arrived in Virginia. So as part and parcel of his training there, he would have known how to concoct poisons, so to speak. He would have known you know, the proportions of, of what would be enough to effectively kill a person. In, in terms of what he used, uh, that's difficult to say, uh, since um, this isn't something that Pot would have wanted to leave a paper trail on, uh, even if we did have the record. Certainly, there, there are a number of things that uh, could have been put to use that the colonists are known to have had. There's archaeological evidence of arsenic in Jamestown wells. Whether or not that's naturally occurring arsenic, whether or not the wells were intentionally fouled, as uh, some would have you believe, it's, it's tough to say. But things like that would have been available to pot and uh, could have been easily mixed um, with an alcoholic beverage. The sense that we get from the colonial records of this particular event is that William Tucker and, and Pot kind of acted on their own, so to speak. The reason that I, you know, kind of go to that conclusion is that, you know, legal action is attempted to be brought against Pot for his role in, in doing this. And it certainly seems to suggest that the poisoning to be able to kill a significant amount of Virginia Indians all in one blow without having to resort to uh, open warfare uh, was, was his idea. More on that legal action in a moment, but we have to go down a how we got here rabbit hole based on what history tells us about Potts' past. He was not the kind of guy you wanted to be involved with. Prior to this particular poisoning taking place in 1623, Pot asks the Pamunkey Indians to redeem one of the prisoners that was taken from Martin Hunter, a woman named Jane Dickinson. She, by all standards, uh, is treated horribly once she's redeemed by Pot. She's taken into indentured servitude on his personal plantation, and in March of 1624, she petitions the, uh, the colonial governor, Francis Wyatt, um, to free her, claiming that Pot kept her in a worse condition and in greater slavery than the Indians had. So that's, uh, that's, that's quite damning. Afterwards, there's a long list of legal problems and issues that Pot 
ends up being involved in. This ranges from stealing hogs and cows. Uh, there's a malpractice suit that's brought against him, which is rather interesting because I think that's one of the first cases that we actually see of that uh, in the colonial record in Virginia. In 1624, the King of England takes control of Virginia and Pot is removed from the Governor's Council. An investigation takes place into the poisoning plot, but nothing comes of it, and Pot is restored to the Council two years later. The doctor would square off with the new Royal Governor, Sir John Harvey, in 1629. Pot is arrested and jailed upon Harvey's arrival. But because of Pot's popularity, he's released. In 1634, when Pot attempts to you know, basically restore himself to his seat, restore himself to a place of power, and get Harvey booted out of his uh, leadership role, he's caught. There are several um, other plotters that are trying to remove Harvey from office. They're arrested. Harvey and Pot both leave the colony for England in 1635 on the same ship, no, no less. Harvey is going back to the UK to, you know, kind of make his case for why certain Virginians should be removed from power, why he was an unsuccessful governor. And Pot is going back to effectively plead his case that he shouldn't be tried for treason. When they both return, Pot is initially convicted of treason in England. But once again, Pot escapes justice and is acquitted. When thinking about him, you might kind of get an evil doctor or evil scientist vibe. I know I did. A villain who just keeps getting away with his deceitful deeds. He's also, from what we see in the historical record, a very shrewd politician. It's one of those things, too, where, you know, when he does the wrong thing, when he steals his neighbor's property, when he's you know, convicted of malpractice, he consistently gets off the hook because he's a popular figure. And uh, if you think about those individuals who are living in the colony, who survived the 1622 assault, who are you know, increasingly looking to expand their own holdings, take land from the Virginia Indians, and you know, Pot's effectively carrying out a campaign to do just that, uh, that's going to ingratiate himself as you know, a populist leader and figure. There's a lot of takeaways from that. I'm just going to leave it, leave it there for now. But uh, it's really interesting that he, on one hand, is known for his skills as a doctor, for better or worse. But I think that overshadows what he does on the political scene, too. The last known record of Dr. Pott is of his death in the UK in 1641. He had no children to defend or rebuke his name. Let's get back to the main story here. In the aftermath of the poisoning in 1623, warfare between the colonists and Indians intensified. Remember the war chieftain, Obi Canoe? We haven't heard his name in a while. And that's because it's believed he was sickened in the poisoning. He sort of disappears. He's thought to have died. So the conflict continues on and off for years until that war chieftain returns. In 1644, Opie Kankanu, who not only was the mastermind of the 1622 assault and survives this particular incident, leads another assault 
on the English colonists. And there's a period of warfare between 1644 and 1646 that finally does conclude with a treaty. A treaty not tainted by poisoned wine. In 1622, the fledgling colony in the New World had one-third of its population wiped out by Virginia Indians protecting what had been theirs for centuries. But in May of 1623, the English replaced the prospect of peace with poison. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. To prevent and alleviate human suffering in the face of emergencies by mobilizing the power of volunteers and the generosity of donors. That's the current mission statement at the American Red Cross, an organization that was founded on May 21, 1881, by a 59-year-old woman known as the Angel of the Battlefield. Many of those battles right here in Virginia during the Civil War. Clarissa Harlow Barton, best known as Clara Barton, was born on Christmas Day, 1821, in Massachusetts, the youngest of five children. When little Clara was just 11 years old, her older brother fell from the rafters of a barn. And she spent two years diligently caring for him. It's during this time that historians believe her love of helping others began to grow. Fast forward to 1854. Barton moved to our nation's capital, where she became the only woman in the U.S. Patent Office to receive the same salary as her male counterparts. Look at that, leading the way for equal pay in the 1850s. It wouldn't take long for the atrocities of the Civil War to make their way to Barton, because in 1861, a train full of Massachusetts infantry was attacked by Southern sympathizers in Baltimore, and the wounded men were taken to a temporary field hospital, which happened to be inside the unfinished Capitol building. She quickly discovered that some of the soldiers were men she grew up with, even some she had taught back home. Not only did she tend to their wounds, she would read to them, listen to them, and pray with them. She quickly realized that her services were needed most on the front lines, where the suffering was the greatest. Pestering political and military higher-ups, Clara Barton was finally granted passes to the front lines in 1862. So she could bring medical supplies to field hospitals and help however she could. 
In August of that year, she arrived to the Battle of Cedar Mountain in modern-day Culpeper County with a wagon load of medical supplies. The overwhelmed surgeon wrote that Barton's arrival was like that of an angel. And from there on out, the woman known as the Angel of the Battlefield traveled with the Union Army. She was there in September of 1862 at the Battle of Antietam in Maryland, the deadliest one-day battle in all of American military history. Before her arrival, surgeons were making bandages out of corn husks. After giving them the supplies she had, Barton got to work tending to the wounded, even though the battle was far from over. As she knelt down to give one soldier a drink, she felt something tug at her sleeve. She looked down and noticed a hole. A Confederate bullet had narrowly missed her, instead killing the man she was helping. So she moved on to the next soldier, and the next, and the next, and the next. So impressed by her work at Antietam, one surgeon wrote that Union General George McClellan, quote, sinks into insignificance beside the true heroine of the age, the angel of the battlefield. She served Union forces at the Battle of Fairfax Station, Harper's Ferry, the Battle of Fredericksburg, Cold Harbor in modern-day Hanover County, even Petersburg. In 1864, she was appointed by Major General Benjamin Butler as the lady in charge of the hospitals of the Army of the James. And by the end of the war, she had served on more than a dozen battlefields. Whenever possible, she would record the personal information of soldiers she was helping, which launched her into the next phase of her humanitarian work after the war, establishing the Office of Correspondence with Friends of the Missing Men of the United States Army, directing a four-year search for missing soldiers. She and a dozen clerks answered over 63,000 letters and identified some 22,000 missing soldiers. Barton also was part of the Army expedition that identified and marked the graves of nearly 13,000 Union prisoners of war at the notorious Andersonville Prison in Georgia, establishing the Andersonville National Cemetery. Finally, it was time for Barton to rest. So she traveled to Europe in 1869, and there she learned about the International Red Cross in Switzerland. An effort led by something called the Geneva Treaty that was ratified by a dozen European nations. The following year, she quickly volunteered to help war-torn areas during the Franco-Prussian War. Fashioning a cross out of a ribbon she was wearing while helping those in France. Following her experiences in Europe, Barton returned to the United States determined to bring the Geneva Treaty and Red Cross mission 
to Americans. She appealed to President Rutherford Hayes in 1877, but he saw it as an entangling alliance and rejected it. Things were looking promising with President James Garfield, but before he could agree, he was assassinated. Garfield's successor, Chester Arthur, signed the treaty, and it was ratified by the Senate just days later. For the first 20 years of its existence, the American Red Cross was focused on natural disaster relief. She even helped pass the American Amendment to the Geneva Treaty that focused on helping victims of natural disasters, something that continues to this day. The iconic white and red flag first flew in the United States in 1881, when Barton appealed to the public to help victims of a forest fire in Michigan. In 1884, Barton was in Pennsylvania to help survivors of a dam break that killed more than 2,000. She helped Russians in the midst of a famine in 1892 and the following year, she worked for months to help communities in South Carolina that were devastated by a hurricane and tidal wave that killed more than 5,000. She was the only woman and only Red Cross advocate the Turkish government allowed to help the victims of a conflict in Turkey and Armenia in 1896. You get the point. We could go on and on about her incredible work. Barton led the American Red Cross for its first 23 years before finally resigning in 1904. She was criticized for being an independent workaholic. Her almost authoritarian management style raised questions, and she wasn't getting any younger. Clara Barton died at her Glen Echo, Maryland home in April of 1912 and was buried in a family cemetery plot in Massachusetts. May 21st, 1881. The American Red Cross is founded and led by a former angel of the battlefield of the Civil War. With her country torn in two, Clara Barton did what she could to help it heal, finding closure for tens of thousands of families missing a brother, a son, a father. Her work and legacy continue to this day when victims of any disaster see that white flag emboldened by a red cross. They know that help has finally arrived. For a half century, she was the most important woman in social circles in all of America. It's a compliment anyone would be proud of, perhaps more so because that compliment is coming from the White House. I mean literally, it comes from whitehouse.gov. <laughs> but many won't immediately recognize her name because the half century when she was the most famous person, is around 200 years ago. We're talking about 
Dolly Madison. Yes, yes. The hostess with the mostest, really. I think it might have been James Polk that Dolly Madison was the only permanent fixture in Washington because she lived so long and she just was such a big part of our history. And on May 20th, 1768, Dolly Payne was born in Guilford County, North Carolina. And they only lived there for a year, like the first year of her life was there. They were in a Quaker community and then they moved back up. Dolly was the newest member of the well-established Payne family in Virginia. They arrived in Scotchtown, that's modern-day Hanover County. But she was born with a Quaker family that was quite poor. She grew up without quite a bit, and she was cousins with Patrick Henry. And no, I'm not about to play Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech again, as my brother John likes to say. Well, you haven't heard episode six yet, so we'll see. But before we get too far into Dolly's story, we need to introduce you to our guest. Once again, joining How We Got Here, Libby McNamee, a local author who joined us in season two to tell us all about a heroine from Hopewell, Susanna Bowling. Libby looks to highlight strong women, often forgotten in the history books. Yes, and strong women from Virginia who really haven't gotten their due in history. It's fascinating. I mean, I have utmost respect for the men who built this country and fought in the American Revolution and War of 1812, and their commitments were amazing. But what I love to show is that the women were equally fierce in their own way and that they contributed just as much. I, too, am all about highlighting fierce women in history. Let's do this. Dolly spent her formative years right here in Central Virginia. She was just 13 years old when General George Washington claimed victory at the Battle of Yorktown. And in the new and ever-changing America, her Quaker family then freed their slaves and moved to Philadelphia, the epicenter of the Quaker religion at the time. The Quakers were very plain and simple. They despised violence and believed in a very individualistic relationship with God. So they moved up there and the father started a starch business, which when I heard that, I thought, that does not seem like a very profitable business at all. And it wasn't. It went under. And then, because they were Quakers, they were read out at the meeting out of the, the Book of Friends, which because basically the Quakers looked at that as God frowning on you, the fact that you've had to declare bankruptcy. So he got disowned and was so depressed he went to bed for two years and then died. That's right, kicked out of the Quaker religion for going bankrupt. And dealing with depression, her father was basically bedridden and it killed him. So she worked with her mother and they opened up their home as a boarding house because back then Philadelphia was functioning as the capital while Washington City was being built. One of their boarders was Senator Aaron Burr from New York and Senator Aaron Burr and Dolly became very good friends. Pardon me, are you Aaron Burr, sir? Hamilton had to do it. All you lovers out there, you know you were singing that song in your head for a minute. Anyway, during her friendship with Burr, Dolly would marry a Quaker man named John Todd, and they had two boys together. But tragedy struck young Dolly, because in 1793, 
A yellow fever epidemic ravaged Philadelphia, killing nearly 20% of the city's population. Dolly's newborn son and husband died on the same day, just hours apart. She was left alone with an 18-month-old son, who she called Payne, paying homage to the family name. But it wouldn't be just the two of them for long. Dolly's beautiful blue eyes, fair skin, and dark curls caught the eye of a prominent lawmaker from Virginia, who just happened to be friends with Burr. And James Madison saw her on the street and was totally besotted with her and asked Aaron Burr to introduce them. James Madison was 17 years older than Dolly, so when she met him, he was already an established founding father, father of the Constitution, he'd written the Bill of Rights. He's a highly respected congressman from Virginia. So it must have been very intimidating for her to meet him because here she is, this poor Quaker woman who's just basically coming out of poverty. After dating just a few months, Dolly and James got married in September of 1794. Because James was not a Quaker, Dolly was expelled from the faith, something that wasn't all that bothersome to her as she later confided that she wasn't a very, quote, faithful representative of the respectable society. In the early years of marriage, they lived on Madison's Montpelier estate, west of Fredericksburg and northeast of Charlottesville. But in 1801, Thomas Jefferson became president and appointed his best friend, James Madison, as his secretary of state. Dolly was on her way to modern-day D.C. By the time her husband became president in 1809, Dolly was already popular in social circles around the capital. And historians today have even called Dolly and James Madison America's first power couple. And they really were because he was absolutely brilliant and the hardest working man in the room, no matter what room he was in. You know, the room where it happens, I had to do it. I see you, Hamilton fans. So everybody else is like, what is she talking about? Moving on. So well-read, so well-studied, so well-prepared. And Dolly was the life of the party and just was amazing in dealing with people. What I like to say is that her superpower was kindness. And it was genuine kindness. She was kind to everyone, whether it was the coachman or Speaker of the House, Henry Clay. She always had a kind and thoughtful word for everyone and loved to put people at ease. So everyone loved her. Everyone called her Queen Dolly. And she used this influence to her advantage. She really broke the mold on hospitality and setting the standard of creating traditions for America. Because at that point, it's like we had won the lottery, but we didn't know what to do with our winnings. At the time that Dolly became First Lady, America was 30 years old, but we really didn't have any traditions. George Washington didn't live in the White House. He just picked out the spot for it and laid out the cornerstone. The Adams lived there for only four months before he left office. And then Thomas Jefferson came in, and he was a widower, and he was very much against the monarchy. So he did not want to show any sort of etiquette or formality because he really wanted to be a man of the people. So even at dinner parties, he'd say, oh, sit wherever you want. And he didn't pay any attention to any kind of etiquette, which offended a lot of European dignitaries. 
He would greet people at the front door of the White House wearing his slippers with holes in the toe. But Dolly was different. But Dolly really had such a great understanding that people need beautiful things and they need a sense of pageantry and they need a sense of honor and dignity. And we need beautiful things to emulate and to inspire us. And she created all these customs and made the White House the social center of Washington, D.C., which it still is today. When the Madisons first moved into the White House, it was basically empty because Jefferson had taken his furniture back to Monticello. In these days, you might have called it a fixer-upper. The White House was really just looked like a pauper's house. There was no ornamentation, there was no lawn, there was no nothing outside. It was just mud. It was the swamp outside. And walked inside and it was... The walls were covered with water spots from the, the, the fact that the roof was always leaking and there was no furniture and what was there was just totally pathetic and shabby. James Madison said, oh, don't worry about it. Tom didn't really entertain. We don't need to entertain either and we'll get by. And she said, oh, no, no, no. You get Henry Clay in here tomorrow, Speaker of the House, and a few other congressmen, and I am going to get them to give us some money. So she got them to allocate $5,000. He hired Benjamin Latrobe, and they decorated the White House, and he became in under budget. Sounds like an early 19th century HGTV hit, if you ask me. My husband would be all about this. He watches way more HGTV than I do. Anyway, now that the White House was fully decorated, Dolly began holding weekly open houses of sorts. Then she started to open up the president's house, as they called it back then. She would open it up on Wednesday afternoons from 3 to 5, and she called them her drawing rooms. And she had these three beautiful front rooms all decorated, and everyone was invited. If you were the coachman or if you were a congressman, you were invited. Every Wednesday afternoon, people would crowd into the White House. A lot of the reason is because they wanted to see Dolly. So... So many people would squeeze in, they started to call them squeezes. And a lot of times these squeezes would go till midnight because basically nobody wanted to leave. But a lot of it was because Washington City was really just this feeble village back then. It's hard to imagine D.C. as a feeble village, but it really was. The congressmen were living in these pathetic boarding houses right by the Capitol. There were no houses in Washington, D.C. Back then, Washington City was known as the city that had streets with no houses and houses with no streets. And it's true, they had these grand boulevards like Pennsylvania Avenue, but there were no houses on it. And then there were other areas where there were houses, but there was no streets. So when James and Dolly first moved to Washington City for James to be Tom's Secretary of State, Their address was six buildings because they lived where there were six buildings together. So it's just amazing how different Washington was back then. But these squeezes, as they called them, weren't just about entertaining. Dolly was using that superpower of kindness in her own special way. This would be a great way to get people together, to get them talking and get these political enemies 
to know each other as people and engage in small talk. She believes that if you treat people well, they'll behave well. Because this was the time of duels. People were having duels on the floor of the House of Representatives, and Congressman John Randolph of Virginia was coming in, and he was bringing his hunting dogs and his slaves onto the House floor and intimidating people. One of my favorite insults is that John Randolph once called James Madison a polecat, which apparently was just a horrible thing to say to someone. So when I looked up polecat, it's actually an old-fashioned word for skunk. <laughs> In modern terms, polecat is another word for ferret. But in other modern terms, you could say that Dolly was using the strategy of killing them with kindness. As she always did, Dolly rose to the occasion and behaved well and treated people well, and people's behavior rose to her level. But even if kindness couldn't loosen up someone during one of these gatherings, Dolly had a sidekick. She would also walk around these drawing rooms with her pet macaw parrot, who was called Polly. So it was Polly and Dolly. with this bright green parrot. And apparently, the master of ceremonies, this man who was called French John, he used to teach this parrot French swear words. So sometimes this parrot would really say some outlandish things, but it would get people talking and get people laughing, and it would create conversation. Let's pretend you chose to head to the president's house during the time of Madison's tenure. You would not have had any trouble spotting Mrs. Madison in the crowd. Dolly had all these wonderful French dresses she imported from Paris. She was always incredibly well-dressed and the most fashionable woman there. She would make these turbans, these huge turbans, and would put them on her head, and it would have matching fabric on there and all sorts of, like, ostrich feathers and, you know, feathers from Fiji. These gargantuan feathers that would be on top of this huge turban. So she would tower above everyone in the room, and she wore those so that James could find her in the room because she could never find him. She wanted him to let her know what guests he wanted her to escort over to him to discuss politics. She was brilliant at working within the confines of the system where women really weren't supposed to play a role in politics. And if James couldn't convince lawmakers that Dolly herded his way on his own opinions, Dolly would get to work on their wives. She would have these wives' dinners. She called them dove dinners. And she would have all the wives of the congressmen come over. And she would explain to them James's point of view on politics in hopes that these women would go home and convince their husbands. And even if she couldn't convince them, she would befriend them. And then that just created this whole sense of rapport and community so that people actually could get along and people could even have civilities with one another that really had been lost up to that point. The term hospitality really evolved with her. That term had never really been used before. But there was a lot of intelligence behind her beautiful smile and her impeccable manners. She was such a huge political player. This is one of my favorite quotes. Charles Pinckney, who ran against James Madison for his first term, when he lost, he declared, 
I lost to Mr. and Mrs. Madison. I would have stood a better chance had I run against Mr. Madison alone. And even if women weren't part of the political scene in those days, Dolly made sure the ladies knew what was going on. She would bring all of her friends down to the House of Representatives and they would watch the debates. And they watched the debates in the Senate when they were debating whether to go to war with Great Britain for the War of 1812. But she loved politics, and she loved watching all of these debates. And, and she was the first woman to do that. At first, the men were very offended that all these women were coming. But then it got to the point where Henry Clay, if he was in the middle of speaking, he would stop speaking, and he would greet her and her friends. And then he would actually go back to the beginning to make sure they didn't miss anything. If you remember high school history class, for much of James Madison's two terms as president, the U.S. was back at arms against their old foe, the British, during the War of 1812. The Redcoats had their eyes set on the White House in Washington. And in August of 1814, they were closing in. The mayor of Washington, D.C. came by twice and begged Dolly to leave, and she refused to leave. She was brilliant at realizing symbolism to people, and she knew how bad it would look if she vacated the White House in fear and that it could be demoralizing for America. She was actually one of the very last people to leave the Washington city. I mean, people had been vacating for days. The roads were practically empty by the time she left. And, you know, she stayed for another 20 minutes to make sure that the portrait of George Washington was saved. Dolly sacrificed all of her beloved French dresses and chose instead to save her husband's important books, a copy of the Declaration of Independence and the famous George Washington portrait that still hangs in the White House today. Once the Madisons returned to Washington, three days after the British burned the town, Dolly was still as much of a celebrity as when she left. Dolly was granted a permanent seat on the floor of the House of Representatives, which no one else has ever been given before. Not only that, but the inventor of the telegraph, Samuel Morse, you know, Morse code, chose Dolly Madison as the first private citizen to send a message through his new machine. After her husband's second term as president ended, the pair left the Capitol to live in Montpelier. Remember Dolly's son that survived the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia as a toddler? This is where the boy, who was called Payne, comes back into the story. Unfortunately, Payne lived up to his name in every sense of the word. So when Dolly ended up marrying James Madison, they did not have any children of their own. They ended up just having Payne, and unfortunately, it boiled him rotten, and he became a real liability and you know, a drunkard and a spendthrift and a gambler and basically ran through all their money and never really held a job and ended up in debtor's prison and really was a ne'er-do-well. But Dolly always defended him and always believed the best in him, but it was very, very sad the way that pain turned out. Between 1813 and 1836, James and Dolly spent around $40,000, roughly about a million today, bailing Payne out of trouble. His stepfather and Virginia native James Madison would die at his Montpelier estate in 1836. And because it was a place of so much grief and debt for Dolly, she sold it 
and moved back to the nation's capital to a home in Lafayette Square, across from the White House. She passed away at the age of 81 in D.C. in 1849. But her name lived on through many commercial products of the day, one you can even recognize today. After she passed away, basically her name was on everything. Dolly Madison bread, Dolly Madison cupcakes, Dolly Madison, any, everything under the sun was named after Dolly Madison. Because everyone loved her, whether they agreed with James's politics or not, everyone loved her. There was a company called Dolly Madison Cupcakes, and that was bought out by Hostess Cupcakes. So the Hostess Cupcakes is a descendant of this Dolly Madison Cupcakes. Like Libby said earlier, the hostess with the mostess. Cupcakes aside, the death of Dolly was treated like the passing of an American icon. Her funeral was the largest in the history of Washington, D.C. They closed down the entire federal government. The president was there, gave the eulogy. The Supreme Court was there. It was basically a national day of mourning for her. Now, the historical evidence varies, but the legend says that during Dolly's eulogy, incumbent President Zachary Taylor called her First Lady, which would make it the first known use of that title in connection to a president's wife, though no record of the eulogy is known to exist. What we do have is an obituary in a DC newspaper that referred to Dolly as the First Lady in the land. So ever since, she's been known as America's First First Lady. May 20th, 1768, the birthday of a little girl who would grow up in a poor Quaker community in Hanover County. She would go on to marry a future president and introduce a new policy to politics, kindness. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you, Digital Director Kate Albright, for not biting off my head this week under extreme editing pressure. Just kidding. I hurt her. She's really going to hate that I said that. And to executive producer Colton Weekly, I'd say I heart him too, but then my phone would get bombarded with Debbie Downer gifts. And who wants that? He's the best. And shout out to our guest this week, our podcast friend, return guest, author Libby McNamee. She's currently writing a book about the hostess with the mostess. Hi, Zeke the Cat. So sorry we didn't get to pet you in person this time. And to Luke Pecorero, the director of curatorial services for the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. Next week on episode six, the day the world stopped in Virginia Beach. Incredibly, they were able to go through while bullets were still flying. And the heroes among us rose from yet another tragedy. Mr. Cox had an option to save himself, but he chose to go and find others to save, and he lost his life. Plus, the Robert E. Lee Monument is unveiled in a field outside the city of Richmond to a crowd of thousands of Confederate veterans. Under Lee, some of these men served the entire war and lost many, many of their, of their fellow troops. And in that sense, you know, it's, it must have been a very powerful moment for them. 
marking the day Monument Avenue was born. But history isn't what actually happened. History is the story we tell about what happened. And the story we tell about what happened can change based on new evidence. And... Patrick Henry lived in 12 places during his 63 years on this earth. He had a friend who said that he changed houses as easily as some people change their underwear. The birth of a man who's known for a fiery speech that fanned the embers of the American Revolution. Give me liberty! Oh, give me death! That's next week on Episode 6. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.